Welcome back to Humans of Purpose, the weekly podcast featuring conversations with local purpose-driven leaders, leaders creating social impact through their work and fostering in a new era of social progress. We want you to listen, connect, and grow with us. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. It feels like we're at a zeitgeist moment now in terms of a lot of the discussions happening around workplace culture and things like that. But at the time, there was also a lot of discussion around uh, a lot of discussion around the issues around family violence, right? So it was like, you know, we're, we're understanding just how much uh, women experience this stuff, just how um, prevalent it is, and that was like the result of campaigners over decades, right? That just working tirelessly, predominantly women you know, backed by some really um, good, strong-willed men just being like, this is unacceptable and we all have to band together to put a stop to it. Welcome back to Humans of Purpose. Today, my guest is Tarang Chowla. Tarang is a writer, anti-violence campaigner, mental health and gender equality advocate. He's a suicide survivor, storyteller and trainee lawyer using his voice to serve the community and champion human rights. Tarang founded the Not One More Nikki movement, Australia's largest campaign to end violence against women in culturally diverse communities, named after his younger sister, Nikita, who was murdered in 2015. A quick trigger warning that this is a fantastic but at times testing conversation about a range of sensitive issues, including suicide and violence against women. So if you're squeamish about such things, I recommend skipping this one. Having said that, it was an absolute pleasure hosting Terang for this conversation, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Well, Tarang, it is so good to have you here. Thanks for coming, mate. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Um, we have so many things to talk about tonight. Um, this is an interview conversation I've been looking forward to for some time. Um, I think a good place to start would be if you could just talk to us a little bit about your mental health journey, um, and then we'll get into some other topics. Sure. I think, uh, firstly, thanks so much for having me. Uh, and uh, I think that that word journey is so apt and so appropriate when we talk about uh, so many things, but in particular about mental health, that it is a journey, it is ongoing, it's never uh, stagnant, even for those who don't necessarily think that they uh, experience or haven't ever felt that they've experienced any mental health issues or mental illness in their life. Uh, it, it's a journey and I think it helps understand that not only for ourselves, but for caring for people around us or whether we work with someone who um, is open about any mental health issues that they're experiencing. For me, I, I think um, it, it's something that it's taken time for me to understand that it's been present all along. You know, like growing up as a kid, I um, oftentimes felt like particularly as a teenager, something was a bit off, something didn't feel quite right. Uh, and uh, I didn't really uh, do a lot for it. I didn't, I mean, I certainly didn't take any medication. I didn't talk to any mental health professionals. Uh I may have spoken to my parents on occasion. They were reasonably supportive, uh, certainly not judgmental. But again, it was just, I think, a product of the times, like late 90s, early 2000s. We didn't have the conversations around mental health, mental illness, mental well health that we're having now. Um, and I, I think that's a sign of progress that, we've making, that we're making as a society. So for me, that mental health journey started young, right? And then it, and then. It kind of waxed and waned, and I first I first had my first uh, experience of, of seeing a, a psychologist when I was at university. So I remember feeling like, kind of, this was around what two thousand and seven, second third year uni thereabouts, feeling like rock bottom, right, and just like consistently feeling really down, really anxious, really overwhelmed. 
Uh, I think I probably had my first uh, panic attack that I remember, um, at least at, at, at university. And, and I remember going to see this psychologist and uh, the first question that this person asked me was that telltale one that people get whenever they go see a psychologist and it's like, how can I help you or um, tell me about how that made you feel? And that second one, I know so many people that have gone through their own mental health journeys that just uh, as important as it is can't stand that <laughs> that question. Like, tell me how that made you feel. Mm. And it's always the same way, right, Mike, where it's like I'm overwhelmed, I've got so much going on, I can't process it, I can't make sense of it. I almost need someone like I'm in the bottom of a pit and I need someone to reach a hand out to me in that pit mm. and help pull me out. I always thought it's it's sort of like clearly you should know that I feel like shit and that's why I'm here. Yeah. Uh, so probably not the best starting question. Yeah. Let's more sort of deal in the space of um, the why and the how yeah. and how to sort of elevate out of there. Yeah, exactly. I always thought that that's a strange place to start for psychologists. Yeah, so did I. And so that was my first experience and that sort of – to be honest, that put me off uh, wanting to speak to one for a while. I, I went and saw this psychologist for a time because the university subsidized it or they had some kind of program in place uh, and I got, I think, like three or four sessions. So I went along for that. And, uh, and whether it was the influence of, of strategies that I implemented with the psychologist or uh, life happening, I got to a point where I didn't feel as overwhelmed but there was still something constantly kind of lurking in the background, like a, a constant sense of this isn't quite right, this isn't quite where it needs to be. And so that uh, that kind of continued and persisted and, and uh, it had its peaks and troughs and peaks and troughs over many, many years. Uh, and then ultimately the, the, the kind of the, war, the, the real warning sign that was um, quite profound, quite dramatic and and unfortunately for me like many others um something that happened you know was that i attempted to take my own life uh this was uh in the first half of 2019 and uh i'd reached a point where i was uh it was like a cycle of self-sabotage you know like i was not in any way looking after myself i'd lost any sense of a will or purpose to um, live. I felt really down. I felt really low. And it's that kind of thing about anyone that is in that space or in that place in their head. It's not necessarily a rational space, right? That's not to say that they're irrational, but it's to say that someone on the outside could look at them and give them a hundred reasons, you know, about what's going well for them. Yeah, it's just, it's just um, it's probably a good way to explain it is it's like living in a world where things are just skewed yeah. complete, completely and yeah. you kind of know that um, what you're saying uh, might not make sense but it feels right to you even yeah. though it's kind of you know it's wrong. Yeah, exactly. So, so there was a lot of that going on and uh, I mean thankfully uh, the attempt at taking my own life was not successful um, but – it's when I first learned about the fact that people are and can be survivors of suicide, you know, and, and uh, I, I realized that for me it was really important when I felt comfortable and able to to talk about that, to be open about it and to speak about it in a way where I, I had the ability to articulate well enough what was going on and I just thought if one other person listens to me talk about this and while one other person thinks, hey, you know what, I'm going through it or I know someone more than just going through it, I know someone that might be going through something, 
What are the ways that I can talk to them? What are the ways that I can be non-judgmental? Because particularly for me at the time, I didn't, you know, I didn't feel like I had as much support as I probably did in reality. You know, I I probably had more support than I thought I did. Uh, And and I think it's really important that people, you know, that are listening today or people that that, uh, um, go through anything with people around them that is experiencing any kind of mental health issue, that they know what to do. You know, they know how to be there for the people around them. Yeah, that's so important. And and I think it's quite interesting about what you're saying because I think a lot of people, once they um, attempt suicide, will feel a lot of shame associated with it afterwards and then maybe that shame will prevent them from wanting to talk about it at all, which is really, you know, it's a vicious negative cycle because if you don't talk about it, it's like you're not acknowledging that it happened and anyone else who might be in that before that position, like not – until the suicide attempt cannot benefit from that kind of knowledge of sharing. Yeah, exactly. And I think one of the things about um, the shame aspect is that it's something that's almost like imposed upon other people. It's something that, that you know, the, the survivor has to deal with as a consequence of how society views mental health and suicide. You know, that suicide is viewed by so many, unfortunately, still today, as some kind of like cowardly act, but it's not necessarily at all like that. It's it's something that is just um, so someone feels so alone and so isolated, uh, so trapped and and so um, afraid. You know that they you know that there's there seems it actually it's people rationalize it to themselves that this is the best possible option. And I did similar. Um, so and yeah. I think I think there's um there's a lot of terrible talk about the weakness um or kind of the 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 um yeah i think it's the weakness of people who are experiencing mental ill health Mm. uh, whether it's depression or anxiety maybe they've got some kind of um vulnerability that they shouldn't have Mm. and, and it's almost like you know how dare you experience that pain and we you know for whatever reason don't really empathize with that person properly Mm. and i think one of the things for me that's been kind of a learning experience throughout all of this um you know quote unquote mental health journey is just that this idea that we um often uh can can unfortunately you know particularly in, in professional circles stigmatize this idea of um mental health but the reality is that everybody has mental health along a spectrum Mm -hmm. that's just Mm -hmm. the way it is right like it's you you are a you are a human you have mental health that's it right it could be it could be you could have extremely um you could have extremely balanced you know mental health where you're you're on top of things you're looking after yourself and that could be through the aid of all kinds of like treatments you might be you know wherever you fit in um in the spectrum of of mental health generally is where you fit in you know and then there's always steps that you can take to improve that and to make it better for you um, and to improve the quality of life that you then have the thing about it though is that there's so much of this concept that it's um that 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 if you are suffering from any kind of um, mental health affliction that you are somehow deficient or inferior and that's just simply not true what you said right then is exactly what I was trying to say earlier, but you said it better and, and more <laughs> concisely. That, that's very true. And I think I find what you're saying about the stigma to be entirely correct as well. It's sort of like to, it was taboo to talk about 
you know, having difficulties or um, going through a period of depression and, you know, people's mental health changes over time as well. So, yeah. you know, so it, and, and I think I feel as though we're getting better as a community at having a conversation around how is your mental health at the moment. Yeah. And, you know, if somebody asked me, you know, how are you, how are you going? How's your mental health? I wouldn't feel like that's an out of the ordinary thing to ask, but yep. as you were sort of relating, like in the '90s or early 2000s, that that just wasn't in the lexicon. Yeah, it wasn't there, and I think that it's uh, it's testament to how much progress we've made in the mainstream around being able to talk about this stuff. I mean, I'm, there were obviously people um, 20 years ago that were talking about this stuff openly, uh, but it wasn't. I, I wasn't in those circles. You know, I, I definitely wasn't in any kind of group where we were openly discussing this. And I think even now there are still groups of society um, where they're divided by all kinds of lines, you know. Like I come from a South Asian background and there's ideas around how mental health is treated within, within the broader South Asian community. Mm. And there's obviously um, there's elements of truth to it. At other times I think there's elements of, of racial prejudice that oh, people from certain communities don't talk about their issues. It's not entirely true. Uh, but it, it's... Um, it's a complex one, you know. I There's think probably that, strong parallels there between also my upbringing, be sort of be having a Jewish background, yep. you know, traditionally um, hard workers, high yep. achievers, yep. Um, you know, priorities are around working very hard and achieving financially, yep. and sort of mental health is sort of seen as oh. Wait, there's there's a there's a uh, blotch on the resume on the family resume. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there's, I mean, like I've actually heard of you know discussions between families um, and and. Jewish families are similar to South Asian and Indian families in that um, there's extended family units and everyone kind of gathers together. And, you know, you'll talk about someone that's got depression and you'll just hear an, an uncle be like, they're depressed. Well, don't be depressed. They just, they're like, oh, <laughs> yeah. they're just sad. But I think, lighten you know, up, lighten up's always a good Yeah. Idea. And I think, but I think on the face of it, sometimes there's actually just a misunderstanding about what depression actually is. And I think where Stephen Fry said it so well that, um, you know, depression is like the weather, it just is. You know, like if it's raining, you, you, well, you can't just stop it from raining. You know, it's not, it's not a choice that you're choosing to be sad. Um, you can't just snap out of it. You can't click your fingers and just make it go away. There's certainly things that you can do to help your condition, you know, and, and make it better. Like, for example, for me, like if I, um, if I just stop doing any kind of physical exercise, um, I don't do any kind of... Um, uh, any kind of meditation. I don't do, don't do any kind of um, exercises for my brain and, and, and exercises for my breathing and my body. Um, and if I just eat poorly, you know, if I just go on like a binge of just eating junk food every day, I'm not setting myself up to feel well mentally. Um, but it's not like if I just become some kind of like um, spiritual guru that all of a sudden it'll just change the chemical composition of things like it's it's all about finding the balance of what works um, you know and you can't I mean you can't necessarily meditate your way out of something you can't shop your way out of something like with retail therapy you can't um, exercise your way out of something it's just got to find the balance of of living a life where um, you get treatment from all the different sources that that can offer it to you you get um, the treatment of um, strong relationships around you and then you and then you do what you need to do and you do the work you know and you flex the muscle that's the muscles that are required to um, ensure that you set yourself up for success I, I really like how you characterize that and I think it's really important to note that a lot of people think that if you're depressed you just take antidepressants and then you're not depressed mm. um, but I think it's just 
definitely hasn't been the case for me and for many other people I know. Um, If you're depressed, there is so much hard work to be done to get yourself to a sort of balanced, good, healthy operating state. And I think that's where some of the stigma we can kind of go the other way and sort of talk about how much courage it takes and how much hard work and dedication it takes to live that kind of – that regimented lifestyle yep. uh, in a long-term sustainable way yep. that can help you sort of be your best and get out of that funk. Yeah, absolutely. I think it takes it takes a lot of courage, a lot of strength, um, and a lot of self-awareness. I think it takes a degree of self-awareness to be able to reflect and critically examine and go, hang on, like, what's going on here? What am I doing? And how am I contributing to this positively or negatively? And, and I think the the ability to, to do that and to practice doing that is the, is one of the uh, hallmarks of getting out of that sense of like constant dread and, and negativity. We talked about some of the difficulties before, or you did, just sort of, sort of about with language and family. Mm. Um, how do how, how do you suggest or advise talking to family members or people who are maybe a bit more ignorant about things like depression or maybe the older generations? Do you have ways that you've learned to kind of communicate what you're going through better to them? Yeah, I think uh, I think that that it's a uh, it's a challenge that we all experience that's often a lot harder to resolve than simply just me giving advice. So I could say do X, Y, Z, and you could follow that advice to a T. It wouldn't necessarily work. Um, That's not because the advice is flawed and that's not because the implementation is flawed. That's because as human beings, we're all fundamentally flawed. Uh, Myself, yourself, the person that you're giving the, the, you know, uh, the person that you're experiencing this um, difficulty with. But having said that, the thing that I find uh, in any relationship, in any kind of, in anything that requires me to communicate how I'm feeling is that I don't make it about the other person as an individual. It's not that they uh, don't understand me. It's not that they don't get it. It's not that they don't care. It's anything that will avoid blame. And I know that that puts a bit of an onus on us as the person that's trying to get them to see our point of view, especially when we feel hurt. You know, particularly if someone says something harmful or negative about your anxiety or your depression or your mental health, uh, even if it's masked as being well-intentioned, you know, which sometimes feels worse. I know for me that if someone is just straight up rude to my face, sometimes that's easier for me to handle than (laughs) well-intentioned, um, yeah. rudeness yeah you know something that's that's masked as a compliment but in actual fact was never intended to be nice at all mm-hmm. so but having having said that like what i find works is is uh never make it about the other person's character defects or flaws or where they're at in terms of their level of understanding or not understanding i think what you're referring to is sort of depersonalizing it yeah 100 percent. yeah so depersonalize it and and what I would do, for example, you know, if we were to workshop it, like let's say, for instance, you said something that upset me about the way that I'm responding to my mental health. I could say, Terrain um, looks like you, you're not dressed very well, or it looks like you haven't shaved for a couple of days. By the way, that's not true at all. You look immaculate. But yeah, right. Had I said that, we got to put a photo out so the podcast listeners <laughs> can know that uh, he looks fantastic. Oh, thank you. No, <laughs> uh, but I, I, I would say then, you know, Mike, when you said that I wasn't dressed well and. Uh, I hadn't shaved for a couple of days. Uh, I felt upset and I prefer it if you didn't make such compliments about my appearance. You know, so it's like when you and then you name the behavior, right? When you say these things, right? 
uh, I feel. So I'm what I'm feeling. You know, I'm feeling upset. I'm yeah. feeling it could be anything. You feel upset if if someone com- if someone uh, says something harmful or negative about your mental health, and they're they're someone that you trust, you might feel betrayed. Mm. You know, you might feel like they don't have your back. You know, so name that feeling, um, and sometimes that helps us uh, identify what's going on for ourselves. Like by actually removing ourselves and depersonalizing the whole interaction, even for ourselves, we can actually, you know, nail down to what that feeling is. I think also the key to what you've said is bring the subjective element into it. So Mm. when I say I feel a certain way about something, that's not disputable. Mm. So that's, that's just a real, that's, that's a reality. That's my reality. Yeah. So you can't, the other person then has to accept that. Okay. That's a true state of affairs. Yeah. How do we reconcile that and move forward? And I think that that allows for that relationship not to be tarnished or to be, uh, uh, you know, adversely impacted because you're not making a criticism of the other person. You're actually saying how you feel because of something that happened. You know, you're not saying that the other person is um, not caring about you. You know, and sometimes we do that. You know, like, oh, you don't care about me because you said this hurtful thing about my mental health. They might actually care about you a lot they themselves are struggling with how to communicate it. So we've got to kind of like um, find a way to meet each other halfway and, and, and bridge that gap. So there's understanding and compassion and care that works for us, but also that we're part of like a broader thing to bring, you know, the, the collective understanding forward. Tarang, I'm interested in how you decided um, and, and when you decided and what were the circumstances around the decision to start talking publicly about your mental health journey? Um, I know for me, it's only been a very recent uh, yep. decision to sort of start speaking publicly a bit more about my journey. Yeah. Um, but I would love to hear sort of what you kind of weighed up and how it happened for you. Yeah, right. It hasn't been uh, it hasn't been that long really as well for me. I, I mean, we're recording this in 2021 and uh, I, I first spoke publicly about it uh, in, I'd say, 2019. So it's only been a couple of years that I've spoken openly about it. Uh, I think one of the things, one of the misconceptions that occurred, uh, you know, even among my close circle was um, because of the way that my sister Nikki died, you know, she was murdered in 2015 and then I started doing advocacy work around um, the circumstances of her death and the issue of men's violence against women in Australia and in society generally. Because of because of all of that and the and the vicarious trauma and the heavy load that that has, I think a lot of people just assumed, oh, it relates purely to that. You know, and it's a fair assessment to make, and there was an overwhelming kind of contributing factor that that led into you know the state of how I was feeling. But it would be it would be incorrect to say that that was all of it. You know, there was this predates all of that. Would it have happened in the same way and manifested in the same way? I can't say. No one can. But certainly it wasn't the only thing. And so for me, I think it was important to um, help bridge that understanding and help create that kind of um, awareness, particularly coming from a South Asian background. I looked around. I didn't see that many men talking about it. Um, I, I didn't even see that many women, you know, talking about it. But that was a whole other thing that, like, the women who were speaking about it weren't necessarily being listened to or being heard from or being asked what is your experience of Mm. this as a woman in Australia from a migrant background. No one was really asking them in the mainstream. Uh, And so I sort of looked at it as an opportunity to go, hang on, uh, I'm going through something. 
I'll say my piece and then I think, you know, if you're interested in me, you should listen to these 10 other people because they're going through something that's similar but unique to them and I think it could help a lot of people if, if uh, they're listened to. Let's talk a bit about um, your sister's tragic passing and sort of how, how that led you or how did that crystallise you into action to be involved um, very much in advocacy work against family violence? Yeah, so I touched on, you know, Nikki's death. She died uh, in 2015, uh, age 23. Um, her death was the kind of culmination of years-long abuse. Um, there's this uh, something that's well-known, obviously, within... Um, within communities that that are very passionate about ending family violence, which is that where homicide occurs, where the, you know, one partner takes the life of another, it's very rarely a one-off kind of instant incidents. It's not like, it's not like someone just wakes up one day and they're like, I'm going to take the life of my yes, partner. It's, it's, a, it's a gradual build-up. It's up a gradual build-up, right? Pattern of violence. Exactly. And so her, her, her murder was the culmination of years of abuse but prior, you know, prior to that, she kind of suffered in so many ways through um, beginning with like, you know, financial abuse and then and then leading to physical abuse, a lot of psychological and emotional abuse, name calling, put downs, kind of systematically um, um, kind of taking away that person's will and desire to live. Um, and, and ultimately, he took her life um, when she had uh, had the courage to, to and the opportunity and ability to leave. Uh, he he took a life, and and that kind of prompted me to start speaking out about um, oh so many things. Like the, there were so many emotions going on for me. Um, initially, advocacy was like a way to almost make sense of it, right? Like there was it was something to do in the grief. So it came naturally to to sort of to advocate in a yeah, response. Yeah, because I, I mean I started it quite quickly, right? Like we're I mean we're recording this, and and uh, Nikita was was murdered a little over six years ago, right? So it hasn't been that long, really. Um, she'd be turning 30 this June, you know, and I was thinking the other day, mm. like, do I get her a birthday cake, mm. you know, or do I, I saw this amazing uh, cake decorator on TikTok and I'm going to call her actually <laughs> this week and be like, hey, so this is who my sister was and uh, this is what she was into. I've seen the incredible cakes you make. Can I buy, like, this incredible cake <laughs> off you? Can you just make one? And, That'd be amazing. Yeah, we'll just cut a cake yep. like you know keep the memory alive yeah that's beautiful um and and so for me like the the initial kind of uh the initial thing uh post nikki's murder was uh how do i process everything that's going on we're also at this kind of uh it feels like we're at a zeitgeist moment now in terms of a lot of the discussions happening around workplace culture oh, and things yeah. like that but at the time there was also a lot of discussion around uh a lot of discussion around the issues around family violence, right? So it was like, you know, we're, we're understanding just how much uh, women experience this stuff, just how um, prevalent it is. And that was like the result of campaigners over decades, right? They're just working tirelessly, predominantly women, you know, backed by some really um, good, strong-willed men just being like, this is unacceptable and we all have to band together to put a stop to it. And I kind of joined that movement just by virtue of the way that my sister died. And I met some great people through it, made some great friends that, you know, um, I'll have probably for life. And it's like, it, it just, it stirred something in me so visceral that it was like, I have to do something. I can't just sit by. Uh, I can't let Nikki's death be in vain. I can't let, 
I can't let this happen on my watch. But so how do you do what you did? Did you start no more Nikki's at that time? Uh, yeah, so I started uh, not one more Nikki. Sorry, around, I mispronounced Yeah, that. yeah, around, around about then. Um, it just uh, it came to me from something that, uh, that mum said not long after Nikki was murdered when the next woman was murdered in Victoria or in Australia and her... Uh, the story of her killer was airing on like nine news or something. And it was that like 30 second sound bit. And mum just cried and went, you know, not one more. Like we've lost enough. And that to me just clicked like, yeah, this is, this is the problem. And I mean, I come from a background where I used to work in advertising, like creative agency, which is a lot of like behavior change, Mm. right? A lot of like, oh, if you're going to buy this two liter orange juice, instead of buying X brand, buy Y brand, you know, and, Um, You get people to make an emotionally based decision on why they'll buy that instead of something else. But I was trained in law, right? So, like I I did, I I did a law degree, finished it, and then straight away went and worked in advertising. Classic law graduate. Yeah, same with me. (laughs) Didn't set foot in a... uh, I didn't know that. You did the same. I'm also what I call like, I I wouldn't say a failed lawyer, but like almost a non-starter. So I I did a judge's associateship and then after that I said, um, not for me. Yeah, right. That's more than me. I never did an associateship. I just uh, straight away into into advertising. And uh, um, I later, I I mean, last year I got admitted to practice. Um, Congrats. Thank you. Uh, And and that too I did only because... uh, there, there, well, there were a couple of factors. One, I got offered a scholarship, so I was like, okay, I, I should take this on. Um, they, don't, they don't hand them out uh, that liberally. Uh, secondly, we were in a pandemic, so working from home, studying from home actually meant that I had time, mm. you know. Uh, and, and thirdly, going through a criminal process, a criminal justice system process, my parents who migrated from India uh, with me as an infant had never had any run-ins with the law. They were just like kind of law-abiding citizens. The first time anything happens to them in a legal capacity isn't like a VCAT neighbor's dispute. It's not, you know, it's not like a business, uh, you know, partnership gone wrong and now you've wound up in court and it's acrimonious. Nothing like that. It was their first daughter and their second child's um, murder trial in the Supreme Court. And, uh, and and I know from having studied law and, and attending the ceremonies of my friends that that's where that's a culmination of your law degree and all the work and the admission and your work experience. Everything is that the chief justice kind of shakes your hand and you get your certificate and it's a really proud moment for everybody that gets admitted and their their loved ones. And I was like, I want to do this for my parents. I want to do this and show my gratitude, you know, for all the sacrifices they've made for um, Nikita and I. So I did that last year. With the pandemic, there was no admission ceremony. There was nothing. They just send you, send you your papers uh, in the post and there's a little, little fancy congratulations email, but you don't get that same thing. But for me, it was still important um, back then to, to kind of go through that. Uh, and I think, you know, you asked about the advocacy. Nikki's death was so um, life-altering uh, for everyone around her. Obviously, it ended her life, but for everyone close to her and dear to her, it was life-altering in the sense that I felt like I had to do something. You know, so I started doing that advocacy quite quite soon after, um, and and the, the the whole point about advertising is simply that I just traded in kind of one form of behavior change for another. 
you know, a lot of the, a lot of the stuff around um, men's violence against women and family violence is around changing uh, predominantly male perpetrator behavior, right? So uh, I know, like, you know, Victorian state government's done some excellent campaigns around there. So I've contributed to some of that stuff. Um, and I'm really proud to have been able to do that, that it's like, you know, it's informed by things that I know, but it's also deeply personal and, and also very relevant. You know, when a woman a week has been killed um, somewhere in Australia um, still, you know, in 2021 and, and beyond, that th- this is um, it's not the standard that I think we should accept of, no. of, um, of the society that we should be. We see sort of different forms of violence, sexual assault um, and a lot of prejudice and I, I think discrimination, particularly in recent times in some of the highest offices in our country in parliament, mm. um, in cabinet offices and um, it's it's really quite sickening and I, I just sort of wonder how you feel about where we're at given sort of what you've experienced and have we are we discovering things now that we have not known about or is it just that we've sort of buried our head in the sand as a society for quite some time and it's just rearing its ugly head now i think it's a combination and it's mainly the latter one you know i think the former one there's an element of not knowing and the element of not knowing is not like some kind of 50-50 split the element of not knowing is simply i think that those in positions of power and those with privilege have never had to acknowledge that what they're doing is harmful. You know, you look through any system of oppression anywhere, whether it's inflicted on an entire um, religion or race of people or whether it's inflicted on, you know, women through men's violence against women, that there's an element of people who just don't know that what they're doing is wrong. And I'm not talking about like, you know, murder or sexual assault, like people generally know what the right thing and the wrong thing to do in that situation is. You know, I'm not talking about the like, um, you know, when people say, oh, men don't understand consent. I think men broadly understand consent. They understand that no means no and yes means yes. I think it gets murky and and less less clear when we talk about things like enthusiastic consent. We talk about concepts like, um, you know, was the person in a position where they felt like they had no option but to say yes? You know, that's what I think we're seeing in Parliament, yeah. right? That's what we're seeing where, um, where we're, we're we're talking about, you know, if we and if we name the people that have have brought this to our attention, like uh, Brittany Higgins, for example, if we're talking about situations where we have uh, a young woman who works in a in a system and an institution that was never set up to advance her best interests. It's set up to protect the interests of uh, a powerful group of predominantly men. Older white men. Older white yeah. men. And so I think that that, that power imbalance, and that power dynamic is the real core of the issue. Yep. You know, the sexual assault and, and the sexual violence is how it's perpetrated mm-hmm. and how it occurs. You know, and I think that that's what people sometimes... Uh, forget and it's not their fault for forgetting it's because of how our media reports and shapes it that like sex isn't real uh, sorry rape isn't really about um sex at its core it's not about desire or anything like that it's about power and control you know uh fundamentally um sex is a vehicle by which that occurs right it's a form it's that's why violence against women men's violence against women exists along a, a continuum and a spectrum you know you can murder rape and um arguably more serious things at one end and then name calling and cat calling at the other right not to say that they don't have 
profound impacts on people. It's just that, you know, um, rape can leave lifelong consequences on one psyche and and obviously murder takes their life from them. So I think it's it's all along the continuum and I think we're at a point where – where our leaders are having to get their head out of the sand and they're having to go, hang on a minute, like this is happening. And I think what we saw in the recent March for Justice, what we've seen uh, in terms of the amplification of uh, women's voices is that they've been screaming from the rooftops since forever. Just no one listens. It's like people just changed the channel and they were like, no, nah, too hard basket or uh, or... Worse, they hear it and they go, well, I don't do it. So, I guess, you know, not my problem. No skin in the game. Yeah, no skin in the game or, you know, not all men, you know. But enough women that, you know, if you're a man, that someone around you could be impacted. Um, And just generally, like it's not even about the fact that it's someone that you know or could know. Just the fact that, you know, women's rights are human rights and yet we're living in a time where, you know, there's still... Outside of, you know, public service, for example, there's still a gender pay gap that exists for women. There's still uneven distribution of domestic labor, you know, how things are done in the home. There's still this expectation that um, men will be breadwinners or that they will um, behave in a certain way that's dominant, that's strong. And, and, and all of that stuff also is quite harmful for men. You know, mm. we talked about mental health earlier. Yep. None of this stuff helps men. No, you know, None of this stuff helps not. men with, you know... Um, suicidal ideation that I have to be strong, you know, like, mm-hmm. uh, and, and people say to me like, Hey man, like you're pretty, in, you're relatively in touch with your emotions. You talk about this stuff. How did it happen to you? And it's complex, right? Like it's, it's one can't remove themselves from the culture that they're part of. You know, I'm 34 years of age. I grew up listening to, um, rap music and, and Dr. Dre and stuff. And like you, you internalize some of that stuff, you know, you take it on board and, um, things you tell yourself versus the way that things are actually happening sometimes aren't always in, in accordance with one another. And so you have to find that um, way to be able to look after yourself and understand where you fit into the broader kind of conversation around um, whether it's mental health or violence against women or any social issue that also has very lasting personal impacts. You advocate on a number of issues now and I think one of the interesting things about your work is that you're quite, um, I want to say, like powerful uh, on social media. Just want to talk about that for a minute and just how social media can be an effective uh, mechanism to create social change. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, great question. Um, uh, what did you say at the start, Mike? I'm very. Uh, I never. I never remember my preambles, okay, but um, it, it was something, something I'm like. Very, I'm very something on social media. I think you are quite powerful on powerful, social media, okay. particularly on Twitter. You're you're definitely prolific. Yeah, um, and you, you kind of seem to get a really strong following behind you. Well, interestingly. I'd never really tweeted before the pandemic. Oh, really? Yeah. Like, I, if you go back, like, I was looking today and I think I've written, uh, like, 9,000 tweets. It said 9,800 or something. And I thought, oh, maybe I'll get to 10,000 by the end of today. <laughs> but that's only because I was tweeting about what's happening in Australian politics mm. and there's every day at the moment seems to be, like, some kind of new um, revelation or some kind of mishap oh, where the Prime Minister yeah. will say something and everyone is just like mouth gasp. like did did he did did the prime minister say that is that that's that's our leader that said that is that is this is this what's happening um so so maybe maybe it could be because of that but basically i i didn't really tweet all that much before the pandemic and then i think i uh, being stuck at home 
you know, um, we're both in Melbourne. We had some of the longest lockdowns in the world. I was like, well, stuff it. If I'm at home, then these are my thoughts and everyone can listen to them. Um, and I use Twitter literally the way that um, the way that people hate it being used, which is just a vehicle for one's thoughts. Um, but it was great. Like it, it helped me develop community and I've met, um, actually made friends that I'm in real life that I met through the, the pandemic. Um, but in terms of using social media as a, as a force for good or a force for anything really, just in any kind of advocacy, I mean, we see like, we see how like, you know, fascist neo-Nazis use social media for their messaging, like far-right loonies um, who, who want to destroy um, people by virtue of, of their religion or who they are. And, and that, I mean, they use social media, others use social media, I use social media, we're all there, right? It's just everybody's kind of got free reign on social media to voice their views and their opinions. Um, I made a conscious thing to myself, which is that I will be as authentic as possible on social media. I will not engage in fights. Like I'm not going to fight. I don't fight with people on the internet. Um, it seems like a good use of time. Yeah, I just, uh, you know, and I like even if we disagree on fundamental views, I, I'm not going to get drawn into an inflammatory contest um, with them. I've probably been blocked more times than I've blocked other people um, because I don't because I don't fight. You know, like if they say something that I find offensive, I'll just ask them to clarify what do you mean. You know, if <laughs> that is the that is the best disarming mechanism that is no demand because someone told me about that the other day. Yeah. So if someone says something like deeply racist that's like just objectively. Um, there's something that's objectively uh, racist and, and um, inflammatory. Like someone made a comment about the Holocaust and I just asked them, what do you mean the Holocaust didn't happen? I literally just said, what do you mean? And then they were like, uh, you know, and then they're like, you just question them on the very basic tenet of what their idea is and you just put it to them to clarify it for mm, you. Mm. And oftentimes that's enough to, like you said, disarm and be like, Oh shit! I'm I'm actually alone yeah. here. Yep. You know, and then they don't want to engage with you. Um, so, and certainly it's, it makes me angry. It makes others angry. But I don't think that you know 140, 280 characters, Twitter, or any social media is the forum for that kind of discussion. For sure. And nor should we have to engage with that kind of view. You know, like um, freedom of expression is not freedom from consequence, and and um, not all not all opinions of necessarily valid oh 100 you know, like just because just because people have an a, a, a everyone an has the right to an opinion but that doesn't make uh, that opinion more valuable than another yeah exactly and some some opinion many opinions are just simply not very valuable or factual or useful yeah yeah and it shouldn't certainly be given a platform you know and that's that's the thing like if some if some dude is in his basement rambling to his six followers on twitter Sure, good for him. But if he gets platformed, say the way that certain leaders have been platformed on conservative news networks, that's a problem, you know. So for me, I made a couple of things. There was one, social media, don't argue with people, like don't fight with people, can have like constructive argument and debate, but don't uh, don't fight with people. The other was um, don't pay for followers. So I've never, I've never paid to get followers. And I didn't realize this until recently where someone, uh, and I won't name them because I don't want them to feel embarrassed, but someone uh, with a lot of like online followers 
contacted me and they were like, oh, can I post one of the things that you posted? And I was like, and in my head, I thought, yeah, this will be amazing. They'll share it and then like I'll be able to reach more people. But they posted it, they shared it or whatever, and then like two more people followed me. And they had, I think, like 12 times more online followers than I do, right? (laughs) But nothing like... From from them sharing it, two people came and visited like my page and actually interacted with it. And then I looked through the profile and it's how and then I spoke to some people that are still, you know, from my advertising days working in marketing and media, and they were like, Yeah, it's common. People just buy followers now. So you have to look into whether that number is actually legitimate. And I was like, Man, I just that was never about it for me. Like authenticity is number one. Like I would rather have um a few hundred dedicated people that are part of a community that I I feel engaged and connected with and we have a, a back and forth than just like a soapbox for everybody. And I think that's where like social media can be really powerful is when social media replicates uh, the way we used to engage in like, you know, town halls. Like we think of like politics and, and community and we think of like where – you know, I've been watching shows set in the 1960s and there'd be political leaders going to this, you know, community town hall and they're talking to like 200 voters and it's like a pitch about why you should vote for me. And that's enough people that you can actually discuss back and forth, you know, and there's like an exchange of ideas. It's frank and it's it's um, almost a romantic to watch. I watch it and I'm like, this is cool. I like that. If you've got fake bots, you can't do that. Right. If you don't have engaged people, you can't do that. Mm. You can't actually have a discussion. It's a broadcast. You know, and so for me, the power of social media isn't that word. It's got to be social. You know, and that that ties into my other thing about not having fights and arguments with people. That fighting is antisocial behavior. So it's I try to be pro social. I won't make fun of anyone um in you know, in bad faith. Uh so it's um yeah, it's but it's it's certainly something that coming from a migrant background helped a lot because when Nikki was murdered and I started doing any kind of advocacy work, I was acutely aware of the fact that we have brown skin. We, you know, we're not, um, we're not middle-aged white, you know, um, you come from any migrant background. Um, and you're so young. Yeah. I mean, at the time, yeah, definitely. I was, I think you're still young. Yeah. I mean, it's relative, but I think, uh, at the time, especially like a 27, 28, it was, um, who was going to listen? Hmm. You know, and incidentally, like there were op-eds that I've had published by mainstream newspapers now that are word for word the same as what I pitched to them in 2015 and they were like, oh, it's not strong enough. But then after the social media profile grew somewhat, they contacted me to publish it. And I always think that's really fascinating. Yeah, there's something about the passage of time and the growing of influence and reputation where all of a sudden you have this kind of like blue Twitter check mark next to you. It's sort of like hovering next yeah, to you. Yeah, right. Where, where um, you, you know, you, you can have great thoughts, but you've got to have the, the right person has to have those great thoughts at the right time. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And it's a shame because, I mean, I don't have one of those blue ticks. Um, but I don't know that anyone would necessarily want to impersonate. No, I mean, I think you have like a, a virtual blue tick, like, you know, like I yeah. think I think people listen to you and yeah, that, right. that's what I'm referring to with the blue yeah, tick. Yeah, yeah. I don't mean an actual blue tick. Yeah. Um, I would like one though. I think they look kind of oh, cool. That'd be but awesome. I mean, that's that's it, right? That's the clout that comes yep. with the blue tick and I yep. think that affirms the point that you're making, mm. if I'm hearing correctly, that like, 
the right person saying it, you know, uh, makes you, all the difference. What I'm interested in, though, is that you became the right person to have those ideas as a trusted voice. And I think it's got you to a place where you sit on um, a couple of ministerial advisory councils. Um, you are on many boards of influence. So I'm interested in kind of what that journey has been like for you and what it's like now to have your voice heard where whereas maybe you didn't have that before and yeah. also um as an extension of that how do you use your time now and sort of distribute it across all those different projects yeah. um great questions uh i think for me uh it, the, i come from a family like you know particularly like my late uh grandfather my maternal grandfather he was um quite active uh in campaigning for Indian independence from the British. He grew up under um, colonial rule in India. And uh, and so I think there's like hearing from him, learning from him when he was still alive. He'd write me letters weekly from India and, and kind of try to educate me a little bit. Hearing from him, I had that kind of uh, that spirit about representation. So for me, yes, I sit on some ministerial councils. Yes, I've been fortunate to be on, you know, large boards and small ones. For me, it's really about um, helping to bring the voices of those people who aren't necessarily heard or listened to. So, for example, something I'm really proud of is um, that I'm on the board of the Diverse Women's Mentoring Association. Now, that's a board that um, people have to necessarily look up to, to hear about. Like, it's not it's not a household name. Whereas if you say, like, I'm also on the board of the Australian Republic movement, if I say that, people understand broadly, oh, Republic, Australia, yeah, I get it, right? They may not necessarily be as familiar with the movement, but they know enough. It's enough of a household name. But I'm most proud of the ones where, you know, I think of women from any kind of diverse background um, trying to make it in whether it's a public service, the corporate world, um, law, you know, STEM, whatever it may be, uh, media, broadcasting, that there's so few opportunities afforded to them. Um, and I think that for me, everything's better when we find ways to work together. You know, the best ideas, uh, the best implementation of ideas rarely happens um, in isolation. You know, and I, uh, a brilliant idea can come from one mind, but they're going to need other people to help make it a reality and it'll be strengthened along the way. You know, if we take like visionaries like say Steve Jobs in tech or Bill Gates, they didn't, they might have had the ideas themselves, but they didn't implement them by themselves. Um, and, and that's, I think, true of everywhere in society. So for me, it, it was around those lines, like use these positions that, I, that I've got now to try to amplify other people. Uh, and then you asked, I think, about how I spend my time. Yeah, how do you break that down? Because there's sort of multiple things going on for you. Yeah. And it seems like it must be a bit of a juggling act. It is a little bit. I mean, I'm someone that can't um, – I, I, I don't work on two things at once. So I will do one thing. And then I will um, – I might be thinking about something in the background, but I'm not actively doing anything. And then I'll do another thing. You know, and I won't, um, I won't uh, successfully multitask. Like I can't do six projects at once. But if I get into one thing, I will do it, and I will do it until it's finished. And I'm a bit of a perfectionist. I'll finish until I think it's done, and that's when I will do other stuff. So there was a period I think when I was at university that my mum would actually be like, I go into my room to like write my law essays, and she'd be like, Can you just remember to eat? Because I would just be like, I don't. I'm going to do this and then I will do the other stuff. And so I have like a very like work, play type division where I'm like work is work, do it, do it, you know, take it seriously. 
Um, I went to Melbourne High School and the, the motto for the school was honor the work. You know, and for me, it's just like, yeah, don't take yourself seriously, but do the work. Do do it like, um, to use the words of like Ron Swanson from Parks and Recreation, like don't, um, you know, don't half-ass something, whole-ass one thing, right? So just put everything in while you're doing it. I love that you quoted Parks and Rec, fantastic. Yeah, and then just do the next thing, yep. you know, and then just do the next thing. Um, yeah, and, and I don't like sleeping that much. Like How many hours? Six. Yeah, a night. Yeah, yeah doable. Yeah, yeah. Doable. six is, yep. and then like a, a nap on the weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, sometimes hungover, but you know that's another story for another time. But um, yeah, it's. I think one thing that came for me as a as a result of one uh, attempted suicide and two losing my sister when she was twenty three was that life is inherently short. Like it's not that long, so if you've got time to do stuff, do it. If you've got the means and you've got the ability to do it, just throw yourself in and, you know, you learn along the way and, and it's um, it can be fun. That is so well said. I want to end by just asking you a bit about how you manifest purpose and how you see your own purpose in the world because I think you're operating in a space where you're passionate about several different things hmm. but you've actually been able to actualize most of them into a um, – a clear pathway to action or, you know, doing some good from that. I think a lot of people struggle getting from sort of passion or a purpose to implementation. Yeah, right. So I just wondered if you had any things to say about that. Oh, what a good question. I think uh, I think on the face of it, it looks uh, – it can look more impressive than it actually is. Um, I, I think that, that the reality is that I have – tremendous family support like i'm close to my parents um we're probably closer after my sister um their daughter was murdered than before um and i think that's played a a a very key role um i also have um you know close friends that are very supportive um and i've got a dog that i just adore um and and that sort of her having her around um, having a canine companion keeps me grounded. Like her needs are so like elementary, you know, that it you can get really lofty in your own mind. Um, and, and I don't know about you, Mike, but I can sometimes just think like, oh, I could do it all or it could be amazing. And then sometimes you just look at your dog and they're like so content just chilling out, you know. Yeah, then, or sometimes it's like uh, I've had a terrible day, but what does the dog need? I yeah. still need to get home, uh, yeah. finish up my day job and yeah. take the dog for a long walk. Then I yeah. need to feed him and I need to make sure he's safe and comfortable. Yeah. And I think all those things are so valuable for yeah. our own routine. Yeah, and having that helps us sort of put everything in balance and in check that like the world's problems are never going to be solved by one person, you know, and we can sometimes take it on board and I'm the same. So, yeah, it looks like I do a lot of stuff. But firstly, I've got a lot of support around me. Secondly, um, I, um, I'm i not afraid of rejection or failure. Like, they're a given. You know, we will, um, we will get rejected a lot. We will fail a lot. So, just keep trying. That's, I mean, like, and it's cliche. It sounds easier said than done. But that's the only thing that's ever worked. You know, um, and yeah, I get angry. Like I remember we talked about, I told you before about that one article that mm. was published. And I remember when the editor of the newspaper, um, you know, national newspaper sent it to me uh, with like, oh, sorry, we can't publish this. It's not strong enough. And literally like 18 months later, the same thing word for word was published <laughs> by the same editor, you know, and part of me wanted to write to them and be like, well, what changed? 
Like, but it was that thing that you said, the right person at the right time. And, and so it's, it's part of, it's part of it is if you believe in something, you know, and, um, and you think it's a good idea and, um, people that you trust and whose opinion you value think it's a good idea, then do it. You know, there's going to be people around you that think it's shit, you know, and some of those opinions are valid, but some of those opinions can just be people who are going through their own thing. Right. And they just don't want to see you get to where you want to get to. So if you want to do something, just do it, you know, just throw, you know, put yourself out there and do it. Like us doing this podcast, you know, so many people talk about wanting to start a podcast and never doing it. Yeah. It's, it's to the point where I get approached constantly by people who are having ideas about, I think I'll start a podcast and I have to be very careful who I actually will have the conversation with because I know that nine out of 10 actually won't end up starting the podcast. Yeah. Right. So it's a huge waste of my time. Yeah. Uh, Because you know, the, the the people who will start the podcast have already gone out and started it. Uh, Yeah. Most of the time. yeah. Yeah. Most of the time it's just, um, yeah. And I think, um, I think that's the, the, the point of all of this for me is, um, you know, don't let this desire for perfection get in the way of actually taking the first step. Yeah, so I, I think I don't know what the quote is, but I think progress is better than perfection, or something. There's something yeah. like that, you know. Yeah, yeah just yeah. very steady progress towards an aim is much more important than being perfect. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, like Michael Jordan was like, "You miss hundred percent of the shots you don't take." Love right? that and quote. I, I love it, and I and yep. I firmly believe it. Yep. Like, if you don't actually make the phone call, send the email, you know, put yourself out there. The answer will be no, mm-hmm. you know, because and also person doesn't know. you should be prepared to ask for things many times, and you know, just go with that because you know it's like the world isn't waiting for you for your one request, yeah, to sort of be ready and come to the party. You know, you've yeah. got to show your hunger, show your flair, yeah. show your desire. Yeah, it's all important. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, with the issues that I'm and so many of the listeners are passionate about, you know, around equality, that's what's sort of happening in Australia at the moment as part of a global collective effort, like the voices of um, these women who've been disempowered for so long while they're talking, you know, and, and predominantly male leaders have no choice but to learn to listen now. And I think it's really powerful because they're, they're showing that if you are committed to something that you can actually be part of achieving something pretty great. And I think also they've seized the moment and mm-hmm. I think the moment, the time, like there's something about, something feels different that this time is the right time for them to finally be heard. Yeah. And I don't know what it is, but it's it's finally resonating or seems to be resonating. Yeah. And leading to change. Yeah. I think if anything, it's it's um it it's that the people, the rest of us, they've been saying they haven't said anything that revolutionary, that women are humans too and they have fundamental rights just like anybody else. But I think the rest of us are slowly getting it, you know, and it's about bloody time. Tarang, it has been so good chatting with you. Um, where can people learn more about you, connect with you, and find out more about your work? Oh, all over the internet. So I'm I'm kind of lucky in the sense that uh, the name Tarang Jola is pretty unique. Um, so, I mean, if you, if you Google me, um, you can get in touch with me, send me an email. Um, all my details are up there. Otherwise, as you mentioned, I'm on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, 
Uh, I do a lot of like corporate speaking engagements, things like that. You've so, got a website? Yeah, I've got a website, tarangchola.com. Um, pretty active through like all social media. And then obviously, the Not One More Nikki campaign. Um, all the links are through there. And if you want, you can also make a donation to the work that we do um, around prevention of violence against women. We'll definitely include those links in the show notes as well. Thank you. So thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Mike. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player or the link in today's episode notes. Why not share the podcast with your networks? After all, 62% of our subscribers come from word of mouth recommendations and social shares. You could also leave us a five-star review and some kind words in the iTunes store. If you love what we do each week and want to support the show, you should join our growing community of Patreon supporters or consider becoming a show sponsor. To learn more about all of that, just head to humansofpurpose.com.